Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Find more episodes and subscribe on your favorite platforms. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com. In this episode of Writing Matters, we speak with Raina Friedman, a fifth grade teacher at the Jordan Jackson Elementary School in Mansfield, Massachusetts. She also serves as an instructional technology specialist and is currently the president of Massachusetts ISTE affiliate, MassQ. In the episode, we speak about her many experiences teaching writing and integrating technology purposefully, including a number of literacy skills, such as coding, that she tries to teach her fifth graders in her efforts to make them more competent digital readers and writers. Welcome to Writing Matters. Today we're speaking with Raina Friedman, who is a self-contained fifth grade educator, as well as instructional technology specialist at Jordan Jackson Elementary School in Mansfield, Massachusetts. Welcome. Thanks for having me tonight, Troy. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm very glad to have you. And as we start all our episodes, we really enjoy hearing how you as an educator got to this point uh, in your learning pathway. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and how you've come to this point in your education career. So like you said, I'm Raina Friedman. I've actually been teaching in elementary school for 20 years. I started as a third grade teacher and then moved to fourth grade. And I had a student steal a goat out of the petting zoo at the, on a local field trip and decided I'd rather start the year with the goat stealer than end the year with the goat stealer. So I went to my principals and said, after two years, I want to teach fifth grade. And that was the uh, best decision I ever did. It's really the right place for me. But to actually get to where I started, I had a 10th grade social studies teacher. His name was Chief. And he taught us that we can use any tool, any way to support our learning, drawings, pictures, stories. He taught us to imagine and really inspired us. And I really wanted to be that teacher for other kids. And so I went into college knowing that's kind of my calling. I went to the University of Vermont and I was, you know, um, elementary ed and psychology. And it really prepared me for where I am today. And one of the things that people said when I came out of college was they call me the tornado which I've calmed down a lot, but I basically had the know-all and be-all for student-centered progressive teaching, really from Vermont, because they're process-based, not content-based. And Mm -hmm. so I've had a student-centered classroom for 20 years. I went gradeless in 2015. I just did it. I do a lot of things by choice. My kids are blogging now, podcasting. So I'm always looking for different ways to enhance their learning experience and involving their families. And every year is different. I've never taught the same. I don't know how anybody teaches the same with different group of kids in front of them. Oh, that's pretty amazing. So I just like to follow up on that idea of going grade lists really quickly. So what led you to that point and what it would have been the positive outcome since then? You know, I really found that when you do as a fifth grade teacher, you know, the time tests, the multiple choice tests, the math tests, the like all we were doing was testing. And I saw the anxiety in children. I saw some of the traditional pressures parents actually put on kids. And I finally said, you know what? I'm going to remove all this and we're going to go with feedback over grades. I did a lot of reading, you know, about growth mindset and rigor. And um, I read a lot of Carol Dweck's work. And I just felt like to be able to have a child come in and say, how can I do better? 
than I got this, you know, 80% and that's what I am would make a difference in kids. And I have to tell you, since I did it, not one parent has asked for a grade. I go over it on our parent night and I give a lot of feedback. And last year, actually, I finally came to the realization of I do have to do like math assessments that the whole grade does, but I don't put a grade on it. I tell parents if they need to figure out the grade, they can see the checks versus the not checked and figure it out themselves. But I gave kids, gave it back and gave kids two weeks to fix it. Because in the real world, we have time to fix things. I also let kids use everything but a calculator on a math assessment. So if they forget like the distributive property, let them look it up. How do we learn as adults? You know, no one asks us to memorize like the Pythagorean theorem, remember it and then apply it. So I figured let's try all this. And so far it's really worked out well. I have not had shock. I'm really surprised actually at no negative feedback. But I think because I start the year off saying it and I set the tone for that, and that's the culture in our classroom, and parents actually start seeing if they log into their student's Google Classroom, with the, like the blogs, for example, right? A lot of people grade writing through rubrics. I look at the feedback that I have to give. We're I'm also lucky because we're a standards-based report card. So either you're meeting the standards or exceeding the standards. So I don't think you need a grade to tell me that. I think if I go through your blog posts and look at my feedback I've given you in Google and some of it's, you know, writing oriented versus like for revisions and some of it's editing, if you don't remember what a compound sentence is after me saying to you, this is what a compound sentence is for like, you know, a month, then yeah, you're not meeting the standard. But if you start doing it on your own, then yeah, you're meeting the standard. And if I never have to tell you again about it, then you've exceeded it and you can do it. That's pretty amazing. I mean, I can empathize with that. Having Begun my career in the middle school classroom, trying to do some of those competency-based pass-fail opportunities for revision. I'm full circle 20 years later with my college undergraduates and graduate students thinking that, yeah, there's just too much anxiety and pressure on grades. We really want them to learn. And they talk a lot about, you know, like UBD or UDL, right? So I'm a lot of project-based learning. And I find that in doing that, it allows students to get those life skills. And my students who are now, look, my first class of third graders is turning 28 this year, and I still hear from most of them. And I can't, I don't, it's got to be how our classroom is. It's not, I know part of it's me, but it's our community and the culture we've set up, and they know it's a safe space to come back to. And I feel like if I keep making these changes and moving, and like I said, I am progressive, so gradeless is progressive. But I've seen my high anxiety kids have the best year they've ever had, ever. Mm, And they're going to get grades when they go to middle school. And you know what? If my kids can push the envelope and tell the middle school teachers what we did, then good for them. I told them to advocate for themselves. (laughs) Right. Good on them. Yeah, exactly. Great. Well, knowing that that's the kind of community that you set up in your classroom, which sounds to be like a wonderful space for third graders and for child. Fifth graders, I'm yes. so sorry. That's okay. Um, but for your fifth graders, because you were worried that they were stealing goats or something like that. They were in the fourth grade. I like to tell that story because it's so unique. Everyone's like, why did you, who, who, what teacher in their right mind switches grades after two years? Because you think about the amount of curriculum we have to learn and, you know, yeah. the whole new behavior subset. And I said, I just, I couldn't do it. I knew I needed to be with fifth graders and I love it. And I've, you know, I've had opportunities to move out of the classroom and I've chosen not to. Yeah. Well, that's a testament to your teaching as well. So yep. I really appreciate that. So where the magic but happens. Fifth graders. Yeah. Where the magic happens. 
Tell us a little bit about your writing instruction and what you ask students to do as writers and the ways in which you support them as writers and yep. maybe even a favorite assignment or prompt or something that uh, helps inspire them to share their voices in an authentic Ooh, way. That'll be hard. Okay, the favorite's going to be hard, but I we actually are required from the Common Core to teach the narrative, the expository, and the persuasive. So there are years where I sometimes do the same thing and there's other years where I'm looking at the kids in front of me and I'm like, that's not going to work. So I have to switch it up. But I really believe as long as I'm teaching them, you know, how to write and what to write in a way that works for all of us, then I think we're good. And so I actually start the year off with a photojournalism paragraph writing project called The Best Part of Me, where a lot of times you focus on the inner you, right? Like you're kind or you you are brave. And I actually got this idea from it, um, ISTE in Atlanta in 2014. It's a picture book called The Best Part of Me. And kids took physical photographs of the best part of them and wrote a poem about it, if you will. I have them do that, but we write a paragraph. And on the third day of school, I was teaching my kids about similes, alliteration, and personification. Because those three things right there with figurative language makes any of their writing going to be better. And so I sort of start with that. So they all had to come in with a picture and we started the paragraph. I have all my kids blog every other week. I really do believe and some people, some of your listeners might not like to hear this, but in the real world, no one asks for a five paragraph essay anymore. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I teach kids to do a variety of writing and they can blog about anything they want. I give them a packet of like, I think I, it says they should be about 250 words because mm-hmm. I have 23 kids this year. Some years I've had 28 kids. So it is a lot of work on my end because I actually go through, they do it in a Google Doc. So using online digital tools allows me to give them feedback on their blog posts, whether it's in the form of revisions, ideas, or things they've done really well. And I will not publish the blog post until it's fifth grade ready. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be perfect because they're only 10, 11 years old. So they might right. be missing a comma somewhere, or they might have the wrong, you know, they might say, you know, an individual, but then not use, they'll use they as the pronoun. It's th- little things like that I had to learn to let go of a little bit because they are fifth grade, but I, you know, I do the best I can at keeping up with uh, 23 of them. And then expository writing, I embed not only in writing class, but in science and social studies mm-hmm. as well. Where, you know, um, one of the things I do is a lot of opinion writing, too, in science and social studies. An example is, you know, the kids all grow up listening to stories of Christopher Columbus. And then I read the picture book Encounter, which is another story of Christopher Columbus, but does not paint him in the way that students have learned since kindergarten. And I actually ask them to write about, should we have Columbus Day off? You know, use facts from what you know. I also have students that are doing discovery quests once a month where they have this big question. Um, one of my kids just said to me, can I do what is air pressure and how does air pressure impact a tire? Which is a great question to ask. Then they have to research and write about it and share it with the class. Oh, that's great. So you they do that discovery quest. Discovery quest. Yep. They have to come up with a question. And I actually use, I don't know if you're familiar with Eric Palmer's work but he has an acronym called PV legs. So I teach kids about writing and public speaking at the same time, because whatever they write has to reflect on what they're speaking. They sort of go hand in hand. Great. And then the, I'm trying to think the other thing I do for expository 
I've had kids in the past do a mini research project. And I am the type of teacher that I remember when I first started teaching third grade, I called it the Y files. And every student had their own topic. And I went to the public library because our school library didn't have all the topics. And you know, like those like teacher rolly carts, Mm -hmm. I'd get all the books and the kids would ask inquiry based questions and then have to find their answers. Now flash forward to 2020 and kids can now write their own answers. And then we actually use brain pop. So the kids make a brain pop movie. They write and they storyboard and then make their own movie on their topic. Oh, that's amazing. So we do a, a lot of different things. I mean, and the kids have a detective log. So every morning they have to write a couple of sentences answering a question of the day on the board. So we start the day writing. That's great. So I'm sorry, that's a long-winded answer. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, you're reminding me of two things. Um, First of all, just this idea of having them take what they've learned and express it in a different way. So I'm really curious to hear what apps they might use to make their their videos, but then also connecting to another kind of mentor text or resource like Wonderopolis. Oh yeah, we've used that too. Which is a, it seems like that's very much in line with your inquiry-based approach. That's how I teach them how to do their expository writing. Actually, we go over a wonder of the day and they analyze two wonders of the day and have to figure out what's similar. And then then the, the other big piece, actually, now that you're making me think about it is I teach kids about plagiarism and copyright law. Mm-hmm. which is huge for a 10 and 11 year olds who have never heard of any of this right down to, you can't just take anybody's image and they're just like shocked. I actually taught them the other day how to Google search for usage rights. Oh, interesting. Of things. Yep. And we also use Wonderopolis and what they realize is, is Wonderopolis cites its sources on the bottom. And I also mm-hmm. point that out with Wikipedia that sometimes Wikipedia might not be the most hundred percent accurate, but if you look at the sources at the bottom, Those are important. And I teach my kids it's important to use sources. So if they blog about certain things, I'll say, what's your sources? And I teach them how to hyperlink their sources in. That's pretty amazing. I mean, I, I have to admit that with my own children and with many other children and college students and other educators, I'm guessing that most 10 and 11 year olds are not introduced to copyright, fair use, citation of sources. (laughs) Nope all those types of things, which I think is just absolutely incredible that you're doing that. So thank you. Yeah. And so this actually leads really well into our next question. So in your current role and your current thinking about the integration of technology and writing, what's your burning question? Like, what is it that you are most interested in as you're doing your work this year? I know you said you change everything every year, so there must be something on your mind. Yep, I am. I really am. So Massachusetts actually has us come up with um, educator goals, one student learning goal and one teacher goal. And I'm really thinking for my the student learning goal, which I think is what you're asking about, is how to embed coding in computer Mm -hmm. science into a literate classroom because that's a whole language to itself. And so one of the things I'm thinking about doing, and I have to run this by a principal, but I do know other teachers do it, is teaching a math lesson four days a week, and then the fifth day doing coding stations. Google has a CS club, which I tested out last year with some kids. They came in at lunch. I never take recess away. I always say, if you need to, come in at lunch. And Mm -hmm. um, they loved it. And then I also have, through Donors Choose, I've acquired Spheros, robots and so we could use those and then I also have like you know like scratch and makey makeys and code.org so I was thinking about maybe rotating them 
through stations and seeing what they learn and just understanding the language of coding. Yeah. And so, first of all, you definitely have a sympathetic ear here listening to you, thinking about coding as a literacy practice. Yeah. But for someone maybe unfamiliar with, why would I teach coding and language yep. arts? How is that a literacy practice? So, what's your, what's your response can, to someone? I can I can answer that because my friend Randy Groden showed me this summer actually with Scratch Junior. She is now a retired library media specialist, but she used Scratch Junior to have kids write a story and then make it through code. So they actually, Scratch Junior is actually pretty neat. It allows you to take your character like an astronaut and it has a hole for the face. So you can take a picture with your own face and put you in the story. And you could have this whole astronaut has to get to this planet, right? So you have a narrative writing. So you have a problem and a solution and they could actually code the astronaut for their problem and their solution. Another example I can give you is something I did last year. My students and I, we had must-reads because we switched back to Fountas and Pinnell. And one of the must-reads last year was a biography of Jackie Robinson. And there were some very um, heavy, heavy ideas in this book. And Ken Shelton, um, if you've never heard of him, I suggest looking him up. Ken Shelton talks a lot about having these courageous conversations because this book had vocabulary like lynching that I was not expecting to come up that obviously fifth graders are asking about. And they're important conversations to have, and I don't believe you should hide in them, but the point of this is at the end, my students were talking about the amount of problems Jackie Robinson had to face. Mm -hmm. So I said, why don't we write out solutions for him? Like what, as a fifth grader, would you offer for him? Or what do you think he should have had? Or what, you know, just these problems are always going to be here. And just sort of talking about the problems and talking about just one solution. I mean, and I don't, and the kids came up, but there really is no solution, which they're, they're not wrong. What they realize is, is talking about it is the solution because it is uncomfortable to talk about, but it's important to have these conversations. The kids designed obstacle courses for um, Jackie Robinson to go to where he faced his problems. Oh, and they coded a, um, a robot to go through the obstacle course. Oh, interesting. Okay. And they use various manipulatives throughout the classroom as roadblocks. Wow. Well, and even just making that connection to the classic kind of problem solution structure that we need yep. to teach children to recognize in their reading as well as to emulate in their own writing. I mean, that that is a clear and succinct answer of one of many answers of why coding and literacy are connected in those ways. So Yeah. And you know what the kids realize, which I don't think I really realize until much later is how much privilege they have. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole other podcast episode. Yes. How I know. But yeah, that came out of that. And that came out of writing and coding. That's pretty amazing, though. I mean, just to hear that from something that could be seen as a novelty or as some kind of little trinket. Oh, look, you got an uh, Osmos or, you know, whatever the robot thing, dot and dash or, you know, whatever the the toy of the day is. Yep. We actually use that to have a really substantive conversation about yep. some timely and topical social justice issues. That, that is correct. That, that takes some real skill for you as a teacher and some courage too. So I applaud you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the question that is always the hardest for everyone yep. to answer because I, I try to limit everybody and say, okay, if you have to just pick one, maybe it's another educator that you follow um, their blog or on Twitter or a podcast. Perhaps it is a new technology tool. Perhaps it's an add-on to Google Doc. 
perhaps it's uh, one of the, you know, we mentioned code.org and Scratch. Yep. But what is, the, what is the tool or the strategy or the resource that has really captured your attention right now and that you find most useful in your day-to-day -day work? I'm going to say Google Draw. Actually, I think, I think Google Draw is an underrated Google tool because it allows students to tell a story and through drawing and words. And I think, you know, I really worked hard last year on sketchnoting and, you know, taking, making your thinking visible because I feel like those are precursors to writing. Mm. And the idea of graphic novels, I have a graphic novel section in my library, classroom library, in our classroom library, because I think it's important that some students sometimes learn better by reading the pictures as well. Um, Google Draw allows, it's almost like Microsoft Paint, if you're familiar with that, it allows mm -hmm. them to draw and insert boxes and text and tell a story. So for example, last year, my students, we had to do the math lesson. And again, going back to how to connect writing to content areas as well. The math lesson was for students to identify types of triangles. And it literally on the workbook page had, you know, the types of triangles with the kids had to write about it. And I was looking at it and said, my kids are going to be bored to tears. So what could we do? So I came up with the idea and then I'm on Twitter because Twitter's great. I asked if anybody had any great books for triangles and someone suggested triangle by, I think it's Mac Barrett, Mac Bassett. Sorry, I'm like not 100% sure what the name is. But I found a YouTube video of the book and got the book from our school library, read the book and then explained to the students I wanted them to write a narrative of a triangle where they used all of the math vocabulary and we put the words up on the board in their narrative. So they had to have a setting, problem solution. They had to come up with a theme that their story was the big message that the story was getting at. And then they took their story and developed a graphic novel page in Google Draw of their triangle story. Nice. Teaching them about using the panels and the gutters and what happens in the panel, yep. but what readers have to infer between the panels. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. What, what, uh, what did you find they were able to create in terms of explaining their triangles through graphic novel representation? <laughs> I, I actually have them still, but I really think the kids understood way more about equilateral isosceles and scalene than had they just been identifying them on a workbook page. I also found that some of my more quieter kids had a very vivid imagination. So doing things like this gives students, all students, a voice in the classroom because they're reading they're writing, they're drawing, you know, you're just honing in on all different things. And then the other nice thing is they'll see what other kids are doing and say, oh, how did you do that? Yeah. And instead the kids are teaching each other. And then the other thing we've used too is Tony Vincent, who's a fifth grade teacher, has this great, it's called, he calls it tag feedback. It's for peer feedback. And I really like his format. It's um, online and a PDF, but he starts with, um, and we use this for a lot of things. We do this triangle story was one of them where the sheet basically directs the kids to what is something you're looking for or a goal you want to get better at with this particular assignment. So they have a focus. Then they have a buddy look at it with the lens of that student's focus, give them three pieces of feedback, and he has like model questions to ask too. And then from that feedback, the original student has to set an, a goal of what they can do to get to that point. Mm, that's nice. So really scaffolding the reviewer, yes. giving them something to, to give some substantive feedback on. Yeah, because a lot of times people think it's just the teacher that needs to write the feedback, but the students can write the feedback. You just have to trust them. 
Right. Oh, I very, very much agree. And I mean, part of my educational pathway is that I was a writing center consultant, both as an undergraduate and a graduate. And one of the things I learned in that process is that the people that are doing substantive, thoughtful reviews and asking the right kinds of question are going to in turn become better writers because if you're thinking like what an audience needs and how the audience should respond that's only going to help you as you ask those questions of another writer and then help you become a better writer in turn so that's great so tony vincent's tag feedback protocol we should look that up great well how about then um as you think about your work and your life as a writer. I know you blog, you're a conference presenter, so you're obviously creating conference proposals. I wouldn't be surprised if you have a few other pieces of writing that you do for various district initiatives or grant proposals. You said you write for your donors choose page. How do you see writing as part of your professional life? Who are you as a teacher writer? It's everything. You know, it's how we communicate, it's how we collaborate. And something I've learned from a really good friend of mine, Kim Zajac, who's a speech and language pathologist in Norton, is everything comes down to your semantics. And if you're not clear in verbally or written, the reader isn't going to necessarily understand what you need or want. Hmm. And so, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, as I say, and you probably see that in so many ways with the the way you use social media and blogging and... And I do. I mean, I write a lot. I blog, you know, from not only for myself, but for my parents. And one of the things that I find is that just being able to imagine a person who doesn't understand what you're talking about and making it clear for that person. So I do a lot of writing for my families, actually. The first seven days of school, I'm sure like their inbox, some of them are like, go away. And others are like, yes, I love this. Because I literally explain what we're doing and why. Right. And I think I had seen one of your recent posts, like you were talking about your, your classroom newsletter and trying yes, to get that really it. much clearer. And more. So what does that look like for you now as you think so about clear and concise post? Yep. It's one page and it's, I do it in a Google slide and I change the orientation to eight and a half by 11. And one of the reasons I chose to do that is because I think about access way more now than I ever did in my career. So it allows you to alt tag the images. It allows parents, if they want to have read and write, they can have the newsletter read to them. And I also took some of my articles out and made videos, which then have closed caption from YouTube. So if parents don't want to watch the video and hear me, they can just mute me and put the closed caption on and hope that it, hope for the best. That's amazing. And so I find that I'm reaching parents in different ways and they can look at it or they can. I mean, it's got, you know, I try to do succinct information, you know, things parents need to know. I mean, these kids are all on social media apps and they're under 13. So who's actually teaching the parents how to help support the child? So I give them just tidbits about that. We have um, a smilogram box and a bothering box in our classroom. The smilogram box is for kids to, when they catch kids doing something good. So not like I like your sneakers today, but you know, so-and-so help by sharing a pencil so they can give a child a smilogram. And then I also have a bothering box that if you're bothered, whether it's in school, on the bus, at home, they can put a note in the bothering box. If they want to talk to me about it, they have to put their name. If they just want me to be aware of it, they don't have to put their name. I think that's an important thing for parents to know we have in the classroom because when a child comes home upset, you know, instead of a parent emailing me and saying, my son came home and was upset because blah, 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 
I can encourage the whole family. Well, use the bothering box and let this come from your child. So I really believe in teaching kids how to communicate and writing about their feelings as well. And that's hard. Oh yeah. And especially with a culture of where, Oh, you don't rat your friends out. Well, sometimes you have to. Right. To figure out how to solve a problem. Well, what's most amazing to me in hearing you describe your classroom is that you have done a tremendous job of blending, for lack of a better term, the analog, but the things that really matter, like children can write this thing down and give it away by putting it in this box. But then you're also bringing in the digital pieces in ways that are substantive and meaningful. And um, they, they know that they're being listened to there. And it's not just going out into the the big worldwide web and getting lost in the, the noise, but that they're actually getting feedback. So all of those things are really combining um, both the analog and the digital to make a really positive classroom community. Yeah. And the best thing we ever did that combines all of that is podcasting. So oh, the kids have their own podcast. So they're writing right. and then speaking about it. Right. What are some of your most recent podcast episodes? So the, we haven't started this year, but actually, I don't know if you're familiar with Wordly Wise, but we got a vocabulary book called Wordly Wise. Our middle school uses it. And when the book came to my classroom, it was an expectation of the superintendent. So I met with my principal and I said, I'm happy to do this, but I want the students to actually be able to use the vocabulary words, not just fill out a workbook on them. And he said, where are you going with this? And I said, I want them to have a podcast where they use the words in their segments. So the kids um, debated. They came up last year with the podcast we were going to use, and they were debating between top 10 lists and the day in the life of a fifth grader and realized the top 10 lists wouldn't, would limit them as far as how many vocabulary words they could use. So the kids did day in the life of a fifth grader. And one of my most favorite things I had a group of girls do was they interviewed one of our women who works in the cafeteria. They went out on assignment. And I think oftentimes kids forget about the custodians and the cafeteria workers and the secretaries. And they actually, you know, you think like, oh, they want to interview a principal. My kids did not. They wanted to interview the people in the cafeteria. And one of the words was colony. So they were asking her what she felt about the colony of students that come into the cafeteria, which is funny to hear them. (laughs) asked that and then my art teacher somebody else interviewed and she came down and she was like Raina I had to stop them enter I had to stop in the middle of the podcast I didn't even know what some of the words meant so then my kids had to teach her what the words meant and then I had kids you know from New England we we grew up where the Patriots and the Celtics and the Red Sox and the Bruins weren't that great these kids are growing up where they have a parade every other minute so they went around and interviewed the adults in the building about what it was like growing up for, for us. And, you know, I have other kids that did segments on what we were doing in science or what it's like to be on the bus. So, or what fifth graders really want to be doing after school. Wow. Well, it sounds again, like you bring a real human touch to every aspect of the classroom. And even though they're using technology, they're not getting lost in the technology. No. And it's not everything we do. I mean, I have, we've been doing reading with, and they're writing comprehension things with sticky notes right now. Sticky yes. notes are very important. <laughs> Have those out. They are. They are. Well, Raina, thank you so much for the work that you do every day with kids and for MassQ and for your colleagues and everyone. We really enjoyed having you on as a guest on Writing Matters. Thank you so much. Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Discover more episodes and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms or check out filmed episodes on YouTube. 
And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com.